This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When legacy media outlets go after Facebook and other speech platforms for stoking outrage, it's hard to take that entirely seriously. Cato's Walter Olson details the delicate balancing act that print newspapers have had to engage in for at least the last many decades, and why this latest attack on social media seems to be missing some critical context. One of the concerns about Facebook that has been hotly discussed in the last week related to the Facebook files, the Facebook papers, is the degree to which the company was aware of information that was placed on their platform that was driving a lot of anger. And Facebook, to the gasps of or traditional media, didn't do anything about it. And and that's we always have to remember who's saying what. You have to remember like where certain claims are coming from. The Washington Post headlined one of its articles in the package with a very engaging headline about how anger was rated five times as highly as like. And you had to read down into the article to realize that Facebook had experimented with waiting for the different emoji that it introduced a few years ago. And it understood, I think, by talking to almost any psychologist in the area, that with like having been the default, when users chose a different emoji, it was a sign that they cared more on average or were more engaged. And so Facebook started out by waiting all of the other emojis five times as much. Now, the Washington Post singled out anger, but it, of course, love and later care and the others were all getting the same multiple. So right there, and of course, the thing was illustrated by a gaudy anger icon just to draw you into the nefarious thing that Facebook had done. So I looked at that, and it, as you went on, assuming that you read beyond the infuriating first few sentences uh, as, uh, that were intended to draw you in, you realized that this experimentation had led Facebook to downgrade the emojis later on. And eventually, in response to a number of different incentives, uh, including the fact that people don't like anger-making material very much, to give no weight to the anger one while continuing to provide positive weight to, to like and even more. But again, the, the idea was to focus anger, or perhaps I'm getting ahead of the game, on Facebook's initial policy when it was first experimenting with what emojis might mean as far as customer involvement. And when I saw that, I thought Facebook must be taking a page from the practices of the legacy media, which for a long time now, and it was not invented recently, nor was it invented by the Washington Post, realized that getting people outraged in a headline would lead to more clicking or the whatever the predecessors were of clicking in legacy media, and that there have been a number of fairly juicy stories about how this works these days in large media organizations. How, for example, the reporters at some of these large media organizations who have invested weeks in serious investigative stories that don't happen to get you mad at anyone. They may illuminate something very important about the world, but there is no bad guy that can be put up uh, for you to throw eggs at. But however important those stories were, or however interesting on some objective level were, they sometimes couldn't get front page placement at all on the online front page, nor could they get onto the recommendation engines that the newspaper uses in order to steer people into 
following up with some articles after having landed on the page reading about one. So, you know, I had thought, why don't I look at the Post's own recommendations on its front page for what people should read next? There were five stories. Uh, four of them uh, got you outraged and got you mad at specific types of people who you realized you should be madder at than when you uh, arrived at the page. And the fifth one, I have to admit, was uh, about outsized Halloween decorations on people's front lawns. So it wasn't all anger and outrage all the time. There was, to that extent, a mix of 20, 20% non outrage. But in general, this is. It's old and it's new. It's old in the sense of if it bleeds, it leads. The rise of the 19th century popular press, later the tabloids, you know, the, whatever the particular format, the idea is that people would rather read about the innocent person who was murdered than about the fact that crime is down 20%, even if both are true. More recently, you have both at the Washington Post and at many other media organizations, the very conscious and un indeed announced shift toward more coverage of social media or of social justice content, rather, in which the idea that news stories should make you want to enlist in changing the world is a desideratum in a way that might have been strenuously disclaimed by the journalists of a generation or two ago who might indeed have had that somewhere in the back of their mind, but would never have thought of announcing that their journalism wanted to make you into more of a crusader or a zealot. Yeah. And, and even if, in a world where before Facebook, a world in which print media dominated, there are still determinations about what to cover. And then there are the secondary determinations about what to put on the front with what we've chosen to cover. And you know, both organizations, as they exercise managerial discretion, are faced with very much the same sorts of choices uh, between content that they have reason to believe is more engaging, sells more papers or whatever, but which might not actually be as edifying as far as helping people understand how the world works. For example, do you put the fifth or tenth article reiterating some outrage that you've already covered a lot, or do you put something in? opening up perhaps coverage of a, a dull but important area of society that you haven't covered in years. And so for the newspaper or whatever, you know, network, cable network, you know, public broadcasting enterprise, you've got this choice between material that leads to more immediate engagement and material that is in some sense re that reflects better on your organization or helps the reader become a more aware person with more balanced understanding of the world. And then over in social media, even though it's not reporters being paid for the content, you have very similar sorts of decisions about in designing a recommendation engine, looking at what people have clicked on, do you deliberately underemphasize the things that they really shouldn't be spending too much time on because they're kind of the junk food of the social media share uh, things? How do you weigh it? Do you simply let the readers have their own head and thus make your product maximally engaging, even though it leads them down some rather embarrassing pathways? Uh, or do you perhaps err in the other direction by trying to be so edifying that people just stop squirreling? Put the healthy options out front, as many mother and, mothers and, would say. And I'm not saying there's a single best resolution of this. It's a genuine problem, and an organization struggle with it. But what I find kind of amusing is for the Washington Post, it you know it's like the old 
you know, line about a, a, a now departed Hollywood actress. I knew her before she was a virgin. This was the, I knew the Washington Post before it was a virgin on sensationalism. You know, they're, they're facing exactly the same things. Now, it was not the Washington Post newsroom. It was a different newsroom, I believe, that was said to have electronic displays with the leading articles at the moment, you know, front page or otherwise, the number of clicks they were getting, the number of shares they were getting, the number of engagements of other comments and, and so forth. And therefore, in some sense, the amount of revenue they were bringing to the paper uh, up on a, a scoreboard to encourage the spirit of emulation. And of course, this is not a spirit of emulation of, hey, that person wrote a super serious piece that just fell off the scoreboard because not enough people read. No, that's not what those scoreboards were about. In the newsrooms that I've been in since I left uh, journalism, those scoreboards were a, a thing that came around after I left. And it seems pretty clear that it it creates a sort of boiler room atmosphere in the newsrooms. You know, there are, at one end, there are news organizations that are literally uh, either paying their writers for for the number of clicks they get or are simply firing people who don't uh, draw enough clicks, uh, which certainly sets the incentives right out there in front. But as you say, the boiler room atmosphere is there even if the compensation is a little bit different, even if they are still giving some weight to the worthy but, but less read. You know, this is a policy debate in part because there is a lot of, in my view, misguided legislation out there that is now proposing to regulate algorithms in social media and in social tech generally. And the um, idea is that earlier attempts to devise ways of regulating moderation of posts, for example, have often either been stalled or in some cases have, have resulted in state laws that the judiciary will probably strike down or that will fail in other ways. And with enthusiasm dimming for some of the things that people were keen on regulating three or four years ago, there's a new bunch of academics and a new bunch of people studying social media saying, you know, don't concentrate so much on forcing better post-moderation, which we now discover is more complicated than we thought. But Instead, make them disclose the algorithms they're using and then have the government regulate the algorithms. And I would say, you know, there's so many, you know, libertarians often understand at several levels why this is not going to have the intended results as well as being anti-freedom. But one argument I'd like to bring up in this case is, you know, think of it as you would think of the government's attempts to regulate the same types of difficult trade-offs in a non-social media situation, such as in a media situation. The Washington Post uses algorithms. It's not, you know, aside from its comments section, it's not social media as such, but it uses algorithms. And I don't approach that as a matter suitable for government regulation, of course, because libertarians believe in the First Amendment. But even beyond that, I think that we outsiders should have a healthy amount of skepticism. Often institutions are struggling with this. Often they make mistakes in one direction and then overcorrect. They, you know, they can take an economic hit if they guess wrong. And the Washington Post, I think, has made, in my view, plenty of errors in that it constantly promotes what I find to be some of its least compelling content, and yet that's working for someone. Uh, so I don't feel as if the newspaper is mine to redesign. I wish they felt that way. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.